The Slate Political Gab Fest is sponsored by Volvo. Experience the wonder of summer. Have a month's payment on Volvo and spend your summer doing the things that matter to you. Get up to five years full coverage, including wear and tear, by going to volvocars.com slash US. And by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GABFEST. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for July 17th, 2015. The John Kerry is polishing his Nobel Peace Prize edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson of Face the Nation is here with me. Hello, John in Washington. Hi, David. He's got some, he's been on the ground in real America. <laughs> By real America, John means only states in the central time zone. John, it's no. the only states you count as being in real America are in the central time zone. South no, that's Carolina not true. You've forgotten my whole affection for the South. Oh, so the South or the central time zone. Or the mountain or western. Really just no. anything that's not New York or Washington. <laughs> Do you count Maine as being in the real America? Parts of Maine, yeah. Parts of Maine are not, but even but even par- even the parts of Maine that aren't have like hard You're pockets. You're such a that snob. Aren't. Your snobism is so much worse than, <laughs> than, than me and Emily's snobism. snobism. <laughs> yeah, me and Emily's snobism is at least like we're we're we know the world that we know, and we don't pretend to speak for the world that we don't know. Whereas you're like, you, I valorize, to speak for you, no valorize, world. you valorize this other, you, you sort of said the other is better. <laughs> I say, screw you, other. <laughs> I uh, valorize nothing. Emily, are you going to join me? Emily Vazelon? I'm not sure what Times to Magazine. say at this point. We haven't even announced our topics and we're having some like serious scratching of itches. All right. Our topics <laughs> on this week's Gab Fest, we'll talk about the Iran deal. Is it the best deal in history or just amazing then (laughs) (laughs) then then scott walker launches his presidential campaign john dickerson i think was there is he i was there at the launch all right we'll hear we'll hear whether it was hot it was hot and can i just say that we've only we're not even 10 seconds into the show and it's already getting hotter in here by the time we end the show it's going to feel like it did in in waukesha it's also there that's because we have six people in the studio today and one of them is currently in flames (laughs) one of them is is currently a light it's really weird all right then the uh so we'll talk about walker then we'll talk about the fury over a hidden camera sting video of a Planned Parenthood doctor talking about selling the body parts of aborted fetuses. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, what is the best political, or in your case, legal, Emily, event each of us has ever attended? If you oh, want. I get to count legal? I didn't yeah, even I think, think so. I think you can. I think you can. Okay. That was what cool. I, I thought. Le- Do I get to count legal? If you want. Huh. But you've got so many great political events that I, know, I, I feel like you should, you should just do that. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get Slate Plus by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. The Iran deal. How much do you think we need to explain? Well, very quickly explain. So the leading, uh, the, the, the P5 plus one. So China, Russia, the U.S., Great Britain, France, and Germany negotiated with Iran and hammered out a deal. Mostly these negotiations were carried out between between uh, John Kerry and the foreign minister of Iran, as well as nuclear uh, super nerd Ernie Moniz and his Iranian counterpart. The agreement reached will drastically curtail Iran's nuclear program over the next 10 to 15 years in exchange for relieving a lot of sanctions on them. Supporters are already calling this the most important achievement, foreign policy achievement of the Obama presidency. Opponents, which include every Republican, as far as I can tell, as well as most Israelis and Saudis and, and many people in the Arab world, say it doesn't defang Iran's nuclear program enough. It will reward Iran with hundreds of billions of dollars and will lead to more Iranian mischief. The elements, more or less, of what are in the deal are they will Iran will get rid of its plutonium reactor. It will cut back to about 5,000 centrifuges. It will only enrich to a relatively low level for the next 10 years, and it will allow inspections with some some conditions on most of its facilities. In exchange, it will get many of its economic sanctions lifted very quickly. And then later on, if it behaves itself, it will get some of the arms and weapons sanctions lifted as well. So, John, 
what did you make of how the president presented this? Did he, there was a claim that he was so desperate for a deal that he would take anything and therefore, you know, so he took whatever it is. Is that how he sold, did he sell that? Was that no, he didn't say, oh, phew, I was uh, so desperate I had to, I mean, he sold this by basically, I think his most fundamental point was, what's your alternative? If you're against this, what's your alternative? And tried to force those arguing against it. Most of the people who argued against it would say, my alternative is something that is not this, which is not a answer to the question. The alternative argument is, if, is that if you didn't do this deal and kept sanctions on Iran, that they would ultimately buckle and come to the table with giving up more, with more concessions. The administration's view was we got as much out of them as we could get before they broke off and just went to break out, that the the sanctions had a diminishing return and that just ratcheting them up more, which is what the opponents of what the president did, would lead to a snap in in the negotiations. Iran would go for a breakout and, the, and then to stop that, you'd have to act militarily. Either the U.S. would act or Israel would act and then you'd have a massive conflagration in the Middle East. And so the president kept saying, like, what's your alternative? If you don't like this, what's your alternative? And don't give me the magical thinking version, which is more sanctions leads to them buckling. And what this reminds me of, the administration's argument reminds me of the one that John Boehner has with his hell no caucus, the Republicans who say, we're not going to do any deal like what you're proposing, John Boehner. And what he says to them is, that's fine. The deal you thinking are thinking about would work if there was a super conservative president. But it looks turns out we're not negotiating with a super conservative president. We're negotiating with Barack Obama. And as a result, anything we want him to sign has to have some stuff in it that he wants. And so for you to be thinking about negotiation as a situation in which we get everything we want and he gets nothing is unrealistic. And so that's essentially what the president was saying is that what the opponents are thinking of as concessions. Yes, they're concessions, but the alternative is a situation in which we have no dialogue with Iran and in which Iran is still marching towards a nuclear bomb. And then we have to take military action, which would lead to a much bigger and keep in, And keep in mind, these are sanctions we don't think we actually could ba- maintain in the sense that the rest of the world is not going to go along with them forever anyway. And China and Russia in particular are not going to, they're not going to sit by and and not do any business with Iran forever just because we we say these sanctions need to be stricter. Emily, you were a fan of the the kind of outline of the deal. Are you a fan of the deal that was the outline of the deal that was announced several months ago? Or are you a fan of the deal as it's come through? I feel like I'm waiting for the people who know more about this to me than me to wait in more definitively. I have two questions about it. They're sort of related. One is this question of what happens towards the end. So if the assume there's no regime change and the Iranians decide at the end of this 10 years that they're much wealthier, they've gotten what they wanted from this deal, and then they decide to rush to break out, doesn't the deal leave a kind of loophole open where that's possible? And then if that's the case, how do you square that with what President Obama said about how the way to judge this deal is about whether... Iran's nuclear capabilities are going to be more or less likely. And full stop, that's it. He said, we're not thinking about their support for terrorism. We're not talking about whether they might have a friendlier government someday because of this. We're not talking about all the other kinds of trouble they cause in their region. We're simply looking at this one factor. And it seems to me that actually he is gambling on the idea that Iran is going to open up, that ending sanctions and making the country wealthier will also make it more moderate. And if you don't believe that, then it seems to me that this sort of 10-year deadline and what happens right before it becomes much dicier. But what do you guys think about that? Well, I I want to say two things to that. One, since I basically believe that Iranians are Americans, but with um, better kebabs and blacker hair, I tend to think actually that Iranian society is heading towards more moderation and that that Iran is going to be a moderating force in that that region, even though nobody else seems to think that. If only the Iranian government would pay me to express these views, it would be great. I, well, you seem to have a kind of almost religious faith about this. Yeah. I don't it's actually true. feel like your but, faith in it is evidence Anyway, based. Anyway, but the second point is, I think, <laughs> I think talking, you, about, talking about what happens in 15 years and, and sort of conditioning your reaction to what the deal is about based on what's happening Ten. in 15... 10, 15, 10 to 15 well, it's years. Well, mu- it's mushy, but let's say ten, even eight, 10 years. 8 to 10 to I 15 to 20. Is, 
is folly. Like, who knows what the world looks like in eight years? Like, really? Really? Th- that is not that long from now. Yeah, I feel like it's that it's time. folly not to try to make some kind of you, account well, for you can't, what You can't hold years. people to behavior. What? So, so would the deal be better if it was 16 years or 30 years? You're saying they could do a 30-year deal? There's no way they could do a 30-year deal. 15 right, years seems I to agree. me extraordinary I mean, that the length long. of time that they made a deal that, that stretches that long seems to me remarkable. Really remarkable. But don't you think we are essentially betting on your religious no. belief in Iran's moderation? And okay, no. so if we're not, John, why? No, aren't I, we? I think. I mean, I think it would be lovely if that happened. I think he. I think he recognizes and thinks that they're going to still support Hamas and Hezbollah, and there will still be. And there are people who make this case, which are not who are not in the administration, but who make who make the case that the con, the coming conflict with Iran is not over nuclear weapons, but it's over these regional conflicts, either in Yemen or or in Lebanon or. Or in Syria, and that that's that's where because they are trying to assert their uh, influence in you know four or five different countries in which we have sometimes aligning interests, sometimes different uh, oppositional interests. So I think that the president would love you know if there was a flowering and a virtuous cycle that kicked in, and I think he be- believes in that a little bit, but I think that's not a requirement for this deal in his mind, to have been a good idea. I think it, in his mind, it puts a pause in what they're doing uh, for some number of years, eight to 10 years. And he either hopes that something good will happen in the meantime or something that just some new event will happen. And by the way, if it doesn't, it's still better than what was going on at the moment, which was their march towards breakout, which was causing instability in the region. It was raising questions about the U.S. leadership in the region. It's an imperfect deal that's better than what was the status quo. So the problem is is on simmer now, and it was on boil before, and it, it may get to boil again, but he's delayed it going to boil again. I think the the argument that some of the opponents would make is that what you've done is you may have put a pause in it for a while, for eight years or 10 years. They may try and break the deal, one, but two, because they are hell-bent on – because the deep state of Iran, as they call it, the um, Ayatollah and the Revolutionary Guard are committed to the destruction of Israel and committed to using nuclear weapons as a way to expand their influence in the region, that what will happen is once you get to eight, year eight or year 10 or seven or whenever they decide to really go for breakout, that they will have perfected all of the techniques possible. So the, the time to break out is super short. And so what you've done is you've – delayed getting a nuclear weapon, but when they have the capacity to get it, they'll be able to get more and do it faster. So you've just you and put off the pain with the pain. And they'll be wealthier. They'll be enriched by right. the end of the right. sanctions. They'll be right. in a much right. better economic I, I, I'm position. sure Iran right. will have a nuclear weapon in 15 years. I, I don't have any... Right. You are untroubled that. by that. I'm not but untroubled that sort of by it. I, just, the whole I, find, I find it weird the way that we, we treat Iran as though it is... It's like a different species of country, as though it's not like any other country in the world, as though it's it's somehow uniquely evil or uniquely violent or uniquely disruptive. I mean, there's a story in the New York Times today just about all this, the ways Saudi Arabia is interfering all over the world to undermine Shiites, advance Saudi interests and and block Iran. Now, we, when Saudi Arabia does it, we say that's, you know, that's diplomacy or that's kind of active pursuit of their national interest. But when Iran does it, it's it's somehow seen as architecting global terror. And it certainly it does. Iran has certainly like fostered its share of global terror. I'm not saying it they has are it. wrecking Syria right now. They're everyone's contributing wrecking Syria. to it the wreckage. Everyone is who's not wrecking Syria. Like isn't well, Syria also isn't, isn't Syria also being wrecked by a kind of you know, militant Islam that Saudi Arabia is as responsible for anybody well, for, for, for allowing to flourish and enabling. So certainly Ar- Iran has backed a bad regime, but there it's like it's a set of bad actors there. And, and it is not at all obvious, should, like what, if you wanted to if you wanted to cause that country to calm down and to to, to quiet it, it's not really clear what you would do. I think the question is whether Iran, and they're opposed to the worst groups there, which is ISIS. Is whether Iran is like the, the Russians where they are deeply interested in their own aims and will do bad things to get them, or whether they're like the North Koreans and they're deeply interested in their own aims and will do crazy things to get them. And so that those, right, those are not the irrational. only. That's the that's not the only two. Well, okay, in the or they're world. Switzerland, but I don't think no, there are people who the, think the, they're not Switzerland. that they're Switzerland. That they're like most kind of 
powerful regional powers. Like, well, they're, they're why isn't Russia a regional power? Russia isn't. Russia is a global power. Russia is okay. Not a so regional okay, power. so fine. It's so whatever or more, North Korea. So they, they're acting in their regional interests and they're doing what everybody else does, or they have a special theological worldview that will cause them to not act by the normal sort of connectivity of self-interest, that they will leap over and do things for crazy reasons that are not easy right. to predict actually, or forestall. I actually think there's a, there's an element in America, because America is, so, is a country with filled with people who have deep religious beliefs and who are animated by those deep religious beliefs. I think there's a there's a both an understanding of that how of how strong religious motivation can be and that's really good that Americans I think are really good at understanding how powerful religion can be but also a kind of overstating of sometimes sometimes of that but, and I, and I think that, that that there are a lot of there are a lot of people who see Iran in these apocalyptic terms and because there is an element of you know, profound element of fundamentalist religious ideology that runs through it, but it's not the only element. It's a nation. No, no, but it's like I, a nation. But it's a nation with, in which yeah, the people with the control. Yeah, but it's the element in control. You're right. It's, it's the, not the deep the, state in an Iran. Element is. of an element of control. And and the you but know, who the, else? But like, but everybody who's I mean, there there's no disagreement even among people who like this deal with the president that the deep state in Iran, which is the Ayatollah and the people in the Iranian Guard, are the ones running the show. I mean, there's no there's no disagreement. Right, and over it's that. not a free country. I mean, there are all kinds of ways in which they. I know, but are there are so many not free. Con- there are so many not free countries right, the, with religious dominated by religious I people. That, but th- and and you, this no, is, Saudi Arabia it, being number one, almost all the Gulf states being number two. You know, Pakistan in its own way being like this. It's not Iran is so, not massively different than other countries. So here's it, the difference on Saudi Arabia like, is that is that Saudi Arabia has been convinced that it's that despite all of the bad things it may do, it's in its self interest not to have a nuclear weapon and that some, there, there has been some reason that has been brought to bear on the Saudi Arabians either through reason where they were just they had no other choice or they concluded that it was in their self-interest not to have a nuclear weapon. Iran was taking a different path. That's because so it has a Saudi larger... Arabia is under an American umbrella and Iran is not under an American umbrella. But they could choose to But be. that's I a mean, big difference. I and mean, that's we're the difference about that this we're, from and, an American and, and so when you start to And when you start to make the world somewhat more peaceful and you sort of re- encourage more trade and more economic integration and more kind of middle class prosperity, it's very likely that that Iran becomes a less crazy country. Well, that's if you think that when the sanctions are lifted, the money goes to create middle class prosperity. There are plenty of people who think when the sanctions are lifted, the money goes to right. Hezbollah and Hamas. Right. And right. So. Right. right. I mean, the counterpoint to that is actually that the people of Iran have not rebelled, had a revolution against the fundamentalist regime because they're too content, because they're, they're actually economically sufficient enough that they have too much to lose, just like Americans. Well, and so this arguably entrenches the regime. The rebellion was crushed. There was there a was an there attempt, was a, and it didn't, attempt. but it, it didn't, didn't actually go, go all that far. Right. right. Well, it's not. I mean, yeah. Iran is more like a little China than it is like Russia. That's how I would think about it. Anyway, j- let's go to sort of the domestic political implications, John. So the danger to the president is, uh, I mean, first of all, that, that there's a congressional resolution from both houses disapproving of the deal. Right. And that he vetoes it, and then his veto is overridden. Right. Is that realistic? I think that's unlikely. I don't think you're going to find 13 Democrats to buck the president on this because there's not a. I mean, I don't think there's anything in the deal right now that is so glaring that you're going to find new Democrats to be against it. There will be some skepticism by Democrats because just signing up right away to what the president says, you deal away your agency card when you just say, oh, yeah, okay, well, I like it because the president liked it. You have to go through a pantomime of, oh, we looked at it, we read it, we considered and consulted, and then we decided at the end it was a very tough decision. You know, you have to do a lot of stuff to show that you actually thought it through because you made this big noise about having a congressional process to evaluate what the president did. But I still think if it was if the president had to had to veto the vote of disapproval, which it looks like he'll probably have to do, that's still not great. It's still not awesome, but I don't think he'll – I don't think they'll find 13 Democrats who are in such opposition to this. There would have to be a 
there would have to be some new piece of news, some, you know, piece of intelligence right. from Iran saying like, sweet, we pulled one over right. on them or whatever that would have to. But are there, are there there and there are not 13 Democrats who need to cast this vote because they're facing a tough reelection. And they have. Well, they, that's what I was wondering is what are the costs so. going to be? Is it going to be unpopular enough that people are going to take a political risk by signing on? I don't think so. I mean, we would have seen it. We the, To me, the biggest concession in this deal is that the Iran that the Iranians get 24 hours before 24, the IAEA 24 can, days 24 days sorry 24 days yeah if only 24 hours so it used to be anytime anywhere inspections that's the way that this was discussed that anytime the the IAEA wanted to come in and look for nuclear activities it could and so that didn't happen instead that they have to give 24 day notice my understanding from the people who know a lot more about the science about, uh, about this than I do is that you can't, although Benjamin Netanyahu said, you know, what meth dealer would you say? I've, you've got 24 days. He would just, you know, flush all the meth down the toilet. Are the Iranians that's not meth? That's not the, um, the way it works with uranium. Apparently, uranium isn't so easy to hide. And so 24 days, while it seems like a hell of a long time to us is a pretty long time. In fact, there's an instance in which Iran was being, they were discovered to have been creating a nuclear program because for a year they tried to hide what they were doing when the IAEA was investigating and the IAEA still found out what they were up to. So apparently 24 hours, according at least to one expert. 24 days. 24 days. It's like the 24 hour thing is is too much. Yeah, Yeah, it's weird that they they should have made it like 25. Anyway, but... um, so my point of going in this rambling thing was that that seemed to me to be when I was talking to voters in Wisconsin and South Carolina about, or I guess it was only in South Carolina I talked to them about this, but that was the thing they kind of grabbed onto. Like, of course, this is a dumb deal. They get 24 days. Like, that no anybody can hide anything in 24 days. That would be the biggest hole you could poke in it. And if to oppose this as a Democrat, you need a huge hole to go through. And that one seems possible to close and therefore hard to get 13 is, is to go this, against this. Um, I still have a hard time understanding that kind of legal steps here. Me too. The if if there's a Republican president, he can he could immediately put these sanctions back in place, right? He could. I can't Because rem- these are congressional, these are laws. These sanctions are laws. Yeah, well, he'd have president. to have, But he would be without the rest of the, the P5 yeah, plus one. Right. right. So we'd have our sanctions. Now, what you but, could do, and this is important to think through, not just in terms of what would a Republican president do if he came into office, but also the so-called snapback, which is if um, Iran breaks the terms of the agreement, then sanctions are supposed to snap back. Now, the first thing is that if they snap back, the question is, how much more enriched would um, Iran be by that period of having sanctions lifted? And therefore, would they be hard? Would they be less punitive? Secondly, you have to pass a majority of the P5 plus one to reinstate the snapback. But let's say you reinstate snapback and Russia and China say, screw you, we're going to keep dealing. Then, as it's been explained to me, the penalty would be on those Russian and Chinese companies. We penalize Russian and Chinese companies all the time, and they still keep doing what they're doing. And I'm still unconvinced, though I've had it explained to me several times, why this snapback is supposed to be so rigorous, why they actually are rigorous, why why Iran would feel that afraid to, of having these sanctions snap back um, in the future. All right, Emily, last question to you. Is Iran going to be an issue in the presidential and congressional races in 2016 or not? Yes, I think it will be because we'll be watching this deal and also because Hillary Clinton has been more hawkish than Obama on this. So she'll be closer to the Republican candidates, but the deal forces her to take a position that they are not going to take. She's, you know, she's already said she supports it. She's going to be trying to defend it. And then she's going to have to convince voters that even though she's a supporter of it, she's more scrutinous, more strict than President Obama is. So she's going to be trying to find that ground and the Republicans are going to be blasting her for having supported it in the first place. And that that puts her in a bad place, you think? I mean, I think there's sometimes it seems like Hillary gets to stake out this position where she seems like the tough Democrat, right? I mean, she also scoffed at Obama when he said in the bit when he was a candidate, you know, oh, let's extend a hand and start talking to the Iranians. So sometimes it seems like she's sort of pulling it off. But I think it'll depend how popular or unpopular the deal is um, as it spins out, right? I think people are going to... um this will have been processed through the digestive tract by the time we get around to the general. And the general war weariness is still there with the exce- very strong exception of ISIS, where you have um, – once people started seeing beheadings and started thinking about threats in America from ISIS, 
their views about military action really shifted fast. I don't. Th- I think absent some belligerence by Iran that is noticeable and shows up on TVs, by the time we get around to a general election, of course, Republican the Republican nominee will talk about this. But the challenge and calculation for any Republican nominee on national security is how clean is the shot? How vulnerable is the Democrat, and in this case, likely to be Hillary Clinton? Because if you get into a real back and forth with Hillary Clinton on foreign policy, there's also the potential that you expose your own deficiencies. And this is an area in which she has a lot of competency. And while you may be able to embarrass her in a long debate about foreign policy, in the short way it's chopped up in a presidential campaign, she will sound, has the capacity to sound more fluid. Now, that might lead her to make all kinds of stupid mistakes because of overconfidence. But I think you're, there's the tendency or there's the chance that on a lot of foreign policy with a country that's not anxious for a lot of big adventures, Hillary Clinton has the right mix of, of hawkishness and competency to make this a, a battle on her turf, again, absent like actually something happening. So I'm not, I, I think we're going to have to wait to see what's actually happening in the world to see how much this really matters. The GabFest is sponsored by Volvo this week. It's time to experience the wonder of summer. Leave early. Wander more. Stargaze. Do it all. Have a month's payment on Volvo and spend your summer doing the things that matter to you. Plus, get up to five years of full coverage, including wear and tear. The wonder of summer event from Volvo. Go to volvocars.com US or test drive a Volvo at your local dealer. Scott Walker is running for president. John Dickerson, you were there when the governor of Wisconsin announced it. He is widely viewed, and when I say that, I mean he's widely viewed by me as being the the Republicans' strongest candidate, our likely next president of the United States, but maybe not. What was his launch like? His launch was, um, you know, as as the stagecraft goes, it was um, about as good good as these things get. It was a packed crowd, super enthusiastic. Walker had essentially memorized his 30-minute announcement speech, which was kind of amazing. They released the text beforehand, and he basically had memorized the text. It was like, it was, I mean, that was just kind of an amazing feat, but I mean, not really that important, but still. I think what Scott, he's not a dazzling performer, he is the least like a rock star, but as a colleague of mine said, the least like a rock star who gets a rock star reception. And it's because he just methodically touches on all of the, not all, but many of the hot button issues in conservative circles. And because he was able to take on the unions and survive, he offers the one thing that conservatives are thirsting for the most, which is victory. Somebody who has who has been victorious in the current hyperpartisan atmosphere on a matter of conservative principle and who stuck with it and won. Like that is the glazing that goes over everything he does and says that gives him this extra boost that that of support that you would think otherwise looking at him, you'd be like, well, he's just kind of like a garden variety guy. I mean, he's not, he doesn't wow you with the way he presents himself. Um, so why are these people going crazy? And I think it's because of his he actually has has walked the walk in a way that no other candidate can say they have really what what did he identify as his key issues what were they they were so this is another point i mean they were so garden variety as to be just like generic republican candidates so lower taxes lower regulation move move power away from washington you know approve the keystone pipeline get rid of obamacare there wasn't a, he talks about how he's going to have bold big ideas there was nothing he says is bold or big at all in the least he's not the boldest candidate in terms of his proposals running right now it's just like verifiably true that he's not that bold in terms of what he is prospectively offering but in terms of what he has done and what he has endured he is the boldest candidate and so it's an interesting experiment for those of us who obsess over these things about whether people vote for what you say you're going to do or what you have done People always talk about, you know, campaigns are about the future. So in his case, it really is about the past because he gains weight for his promises about the future based on his success in the past, I think, more than, as I said, any other candidate running. So what is the case for him to win the nomination? What's the what's his model? I think his case, the case for him is that he's a guy who won in a blue state. Now, what's really interesting is if you look at the announcement um, – that Jeb Bush did at Miami-Dade College in Florida. 
the audience was full of faces of color. There was he was introduced by an African-American pastor. Uh, there was Spanish being spoken, not just in the scattershot way, sort of drive by Spanish that that candidates do, you know, when they're trying to pre- reach out, but clearly don't know much Spanish. It looks like somebody up on roller skates for the first time. Jeb Bush, who speaks Spanish right, like fluently at home, and that's their first language. The Spanish was running in and out of that announcement with ease and transitions. You know, it was a threaded through the whole thing. And so Jeb Bush, when he's on the campaign trail in New Hampshire, says, you know, look at my audience. This isn't a normal Republican audience. And the message is, I'm going to be able to go to minority voters and even suburban swing voters to the extent there are any more anymore. Um, or I should say to the extent there are any of those anymore. And say to them, look, I'm not like the cartoon of the Republican Party. I'm a kind of more inclusive fellow. That's the Jeb Bush push. You look at Scott Walker's event in Waukesha, which is a ruby red county in Wisconsin, the event was like 99.8% white. There were, it was almost impossible to find a face of color in the whole room. And his argument is, I'm going to grow the conservative vote. So I'm going to just run loud and proud as a conservative. We're going to up our numbers in turnout, which were the reason that um, Mitt Romney lost was not because Barack Obama outdid him with this new coalition of the ascendant, but because we depressed our conservative turnout. And so it's two different theories of the electorate. And so you asked about Walker's theory. His theory is I'm going to turn out the conservatives and um, I'm going to be successful in passing these conservative laws or ideas when I'm president because I was able to do it in Wisconsin. So, John, one thing I only realized as I was reading about Walker, and I'm sure you knew this, is that it is absolutely true that he is a one in a, in a blue state and one despite the most absolutely ferocious, well-funded opposition and, and really, you know, faced as, as good as the Democrats could give. But it, never in a presidential year, right? That he's his victories as governor. Right. He were, won the year he, before he, Obama. He, he yeah. won. In bef- 11. Yeah. And, and then again, he won. He didn't he never have to he never had to run. Correct. In a, in a race where the Democrats had. Yes. The pull of a, of a presidential campaign. Does, and also his does accomplishments in office make him. Well, no, I'm, I've, we'll get to the accomplishments question in a second. But I'm, I guess just as a, as a purely political tactics and, yeah. and, and yeah, yeah, turnout yeah. question, isn't that a problem uh, for him? It is. But the problem, yes, it is a problem for him in um, when you do the math kind of at the back of the claims. But nobody's going to do that math or be able to weaponize that math. In other words, Ted Cruz isn't going to be able to say, oh, you won in a blue state, but that's baloney because it was in non-presidential years. Like nobody will be like, he'll be just like, I'm But sorry. party insiders know that. They do, but party insiders know also that, like, they're looking at the rest of the field, too. But I think party insiders would use that to minimize when you look at the, like, different – it's like if you think of it as an equalizer, and each candidate has three or four things or five or six things that you want to have as high on each of those individual attributes as possible, that would lower Walker's general election, the lever on his – that portion of his equalizer, and it's higher for Jeb Bush – but, you know, Jeb Bush's problem is his portion of the equalizer that's got support within the conservative movement is is low and it's quite high for for Walker. And that doesn't matter. That does That's not important just for getting the nomination, but it's also for mobilizing in the general. I mean, it seems to me that the blue state, the winning the blue state argument is a pretty thin argument, given how polarizing Walker has become. And the party insiders must know that. But then the question is, will they look past it because Walker really catches on um, in Iowa, New Hampshire, or South Carolina. And it seems like he's going to win Iowa. So that's going to give him momentum, right? And that has its own power to get donors and other voters excited. Um, I guess to me, the question is, he is really conservative. I mean, if they pick him, they are going to be picking someone who stands for the conservative wing of the Republican Party. They've dodged that outcome in the last few nominating contests. However, it didn't get them anywhere. So it seems like in some ways, just as a cyclical matter, the argument for the strong conservative candidate would be more powerful this time around. And also he's appealing. He has various attributes that would make the conservative base really excited about him, but also make people think not policy wise, but just, you know, in his, yeah, his normal person mode that, uh, you know, he might have some broad appeal to moderates at least. I think that's I think that's right. He's not a you know, he doesn't set people back. Um, 
he's not personally off-putting. He's, you know, from a middle-class background. Right. He didn't graduate from college. Like, he just has these normal guy. Even the fact that he's not a dazzling performer, right. you could turn that into a positive. Do you think that sense, right? those are all things that actually help him? Or is that just things that people I think say things will help that him? Make him? No, I think they're things that make him not objectionable. And, you know, a lot of people are going to tune into this campaign in the general election in a really cursory way. And so they look at him, sounds off on the TV. He looks like, a, you know, it doesn't look like he's a mean guy. He's not snarling and he's not, he doesn't have a kind of aggressive cast. And, you know, the, people vote based on pretty flimsy stuff. So look, put it this way. It'll be harder for Democrats to paint Walker as a, you know, mean conservative than it would be for them to paint Ted Cruz as a mean conservative. Right. And so that would be an advantage for for him. I mean, speaking of the two of them, I mean, Scott Walker's biggest worry has got to be Ted Cruz right. coming after his head in right. in Iowa. Right. Um, so he he is. So they have to. They're scorpions. They're in a scorpion death match. Yes. Now, what's interesting is that Cruz has taken this vow, and he's done the he he's done this before. But he's like he's not attacking any of his opponents. But I mean, at some point, he's going to have to because Walker's in his way, and Walker is already attacking Cruz, but not by name. His entire pitch is, I'm the conservative who wins. I don't just talk. And that's a directly aimed at, at Cruz. We haven't even mentioned Rubio in all of this. Do you feel like John his has an interesting well, Rubio Well, you know, Rubio, Rubio, Rubio is, I mean, it's a perfect segue, Emily. And so I appreciate you um, hey, raising no that. no problem. Rubio, this should be Rubio's week. Our Iran conversation took place without mentioning Marco Rubio once. Now, Marco Rubio is making the case that I can be president because I have a deep understanding of foreign policy and and domestic policy, too. But that what I lack in executive experience, I have two great other things. I have excitement and access to new kind of voters for Republicans. And also, I'm the one who understands things. And so what I expected was him to take do what John McCain did with Kosovo in 1999 when he was running against George W. Bush which was McCain was on the television everywhere talking about putting, uh, you know, being stronger militarily. And that allowed him to use the news cycle to boost his brand and get fundraise off of that and basically just essentially keep himself in the conversation. George Bush had no, George W. Bush had no reason to be talking about those issues. And so why, why Rubio didn't grab this moment, I think, is, uh, I think it's a missed opportunity. I think one of the reasons he may not have is that the general larger freewheeling Republican conversation right now has a big uh, immigration element to it. And Donald Trump is the anti-Rubio and anti-Bush in terms of – I mean he's really the anti-Bush. Bush is, Bush is now to the left of Rubio, but he's not to the left of where Rubio once was. And so if you're Marco Rubio and you're in a conversation, somebody says, well, what do you think about what Donald Trump said? What you say, that like that takes over the conversation. And I think he probably doesn't want that to happen. So my sense, John, just, just wrapping this, is that things are looking pretty good for Bush and Walker right now. Because Bush and Walker don't really need to impress anybody or do anything right now. They just need to kind of stroll along. They, they're both in pretty solid shape. And that all the other candidates who do need to impress are not really getting the chance because of Trump or, as you say, because Rubio, Rubio is, has avoided his chance to seize the moment. Do you think we're – are we going to see a Rand Paul, a Cruz, uh, a Rubio really kind of make a push in a way that's visible? Or is it that, – that, does that not – is anyone going to Trump? Is anyone going to be Trumping? Just to yeah, well, I think, uh, I think the, um, the folks at First Read and over at NBC made a good uh, observation Thursday morning about how Trump has kind of frozen and shrunk the field. That basically now it's Trump, Bush, and Hillary Clinton and, you know – that's if you're somebody else, even Scott Walker. I mean, I think it, I think you could include Walker in that number, but that basically everybody else has been blotted out for a while and that every day you're blotted out is a bad day. You need to get back in the news cycle. But the problem is with with Donald Trump doing his thing. That's a very hard thing to do. And if you're not going to get in the news cycle, you then need to raise money. I would go back to something you said about catching fire after or one of the two of you, I can't remember which, catching fire in, in Iowa. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what it means to catch fire and if it's possible to do that in, an, in a world where Jeb Bush has $115 million in, in his first fundraising quarter and where Ted Cruz will have a lot of money and Walker will probably have a lot of money. 
the normal deal was that, you know, you lost or you didn't do very well in one of these early contests and that was it for you. I think that there's a chance for some of these, for the pool of um, candidates to be large going into these later contests, which means you can do well in an initial one and maybe get beaten up down the line. And uh, so I, ju- I just think we, there's some chance for the sorting mechanism of the primaries and caucuses to be different than we've had in the past. GabFest is sponsored this week by Harry's.com. Shaving is all men know. has gotten ridiculously expensive. You have to pay a huge amount for, for blades these days. You're, blades are often kept behind lock and key, so it's also a hassle to be able to buy them. And if then if you buy the really cheap razors, you just um, bleed out all over your bathroom. Uh, but Harry's is a better way. Harry's.com delivers a superior shave. They bought a blade factory in Germany that's been crafting some of the world's highest quality blades for nearly a century. And they've cut out the middleman. They offer an amazing shave at a fraction of the price of drugstore brands. And you can get a starter set for just $15, which includes a razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave, cream, or foaming gel. And as an added bonus, you can get $5 off your first purchase with our code GABFEST. After using our code, you can get that entire month of shaving for just $10. And shipping is always free. So go to harrys.com, and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in our code GABFEST with your first purchase. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, and enter coupon code GABFEST at checkout for $5 off the starter set, and start shaving smarter today. I love my Harry's razor and blades. You will, too. The Center for Medical Progress, which is a Emily, – Emily will characterize it for us, but it, they would characterize themselves, I suppose, as a crusading – Anti-abortion. Anti-abortion group. They released a hidden camera video this week taken last year, but of Planned Parenthood Federation of America's Director of Medical Services, Dr. Deborah Nukatola. Is that how you say her name? Sure. Let's go for that. So showed Nukatola at, at a restaurant talking with people posing as buyers from a biological company about how Planned Parenthood helps the sales of body parts from aborted fetuses. Nukatola was used words like crush. She used the word crush several times, talking about crushing body parts to preserve organs of the fetus. And according to pro-life groups, Planned Parenthood is committing a crime by selling organs and is also morally bankrupt because it is selling organs and because its chief medical officer is talking so cavalierly and casually about crushing babies and about changing the way they do abortions and perhaps even increasing the number of abortions they do in order to get these organs. Planned Parenthood counters that in all the cases cited, parents are willingly making donations of the the fetal tissue. They are altruistically giving this fetal tissue so that medical research can advance for the good of science and that Planned Parenthood is committing no crime because insofar as it's getting revenue from it is just covering its own costs. This has caused a huge uproar on the right in particular, and conservatives have renewed their calls to defund Planned Parenthood, which gets hundreds of millions of dollars, nearly half a billion dollars in government money, although it's, you know, it's mostly from Medicaid money providing very useful services to women. So, em- And none of it's to support abortion. And none of it is, is to support abortion. So, so, Emily, what did you make of this hidden camera video? I mean, I think it is a really effective propaganda tool for abortion opponents for a couple of reasons. The first is, who knew or had really thought about the idea that fetal tissue is being donated and that there is a I I was going to use the word market, which seems like the wrong word, since if you believe Planned Parenthood, and I do, they're not actually selling the organs and tissue they're donating. But I had never really thought about the idea that the fetal remains from an abortion could have some other purpose. And we're going to places that, you know, process and then do sell um, organ parts to researchers and to hospitals. So there's just like the fact of that. We have to now think about that. And that also tilts our attention toward second trimester abortions. The later on in the term, the more you're visualizing the fetus as having body parts, the better it is for abortion opponents just to begin with. So that is a coup. And then I think the second real problem with this video is just the what you said about the cavalier nature of this conversation. I mean, Nukatella is talking over a meal. She thinks she's talking to fellow professionals who, and they're all kind of distanced from 
the visceral nature of the remark she's making. But if you're just listening to it, it seems like, you know, she's talking about really upsetting, gross things as she's like sipping from a glass and twirling her fork around. And there's just a disconnect there as a viewer, which I think would not have been the case if you had been there as part of the conversation. Um, I mean, this must be just terrible for her. And it's so hard to be an abortion provider in this country. I just can't help thinking about the just like weight of all of this um, in this personal sense. But, you know, as I said, as a propaganda tool, I think it's effective. And then the other, I guess, third thing is some prominent medical ethicists have objected to the way she was talking about in slightly changing the abortion procedure to make sure that you emerge with the wanted organs intact. And so, you know, people like Art Kaplan, who's a respected medical ethicist, are saying, wait a minute, in an abortion procedure, all that's supposed to matter is the health and safety of the mother. You should never be changing the way you're holding the forceps or which part you're crushing for the sake of donating organs. I mean, I have a feeling that, you know, if you really understood what she was saying, those are probably pretty minor variations in the procedure she's talking about that would not make the procedure less safe safe for the woman. But, you know, she doesn't say that exactly. So she's kind of left herself vulnerable on that front. What did you guys make of it? But that wasn't... I, I didn't think that the safety of the woman was the problem with the changing the procedure. It's that the changing the procedure recognizes at some level that actions are being taken to feed a market and that the market is the thing being um, prioritized or, or at least included in the medical procedure. And while it may do no harm to the woman, you have now suggested that the market is playing some role in the process. And once you've created, once you've brought the market into the conversation, you're now talking about a market for human remains. And that both as a just as a notion makes people quite uneasy, but then also ethically, that's where they had where ethicists had kind of drawn the line that you wanted to keep that line bright to make this not ethically well over the line. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm not talking to the wrong person here. I mean, like, I I hope they you know crush my skull and grab my heart and like you know immediately do gruesome experiments on it, you know, whenever possible. So I'm, I'm all for their, any, any manipulation of human flesh and dead human flesh that can be put to use for other people in the future seems to me like a, not just an okay thing, but an unbelievably positive moral good. Right. But, and, and, and I don't think that, but that, and also I think strong. that like the key point here, John, is you're right. It is, it does suggest there's a market and you, you frame that very well, but it begins but with parents making a don parents donating this tissue. Parents saying we are donating this tissue. Now there are. That's not to say there are not economic exchanges that follow, because right. They're, and of course there are because it's costs. valuable. If it didn't have value, to, once it has value to researchers, there's a market for it. Right, but no, but right, but it isn't. No one's really. It's it, 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 there is a market and and people want it and are clamoring for it. But basically, the economic transactions seem to be about compensating for the yeah. you know the, the the cost of the work. Not really. There's not like people aren't bidding. Like I'll give a thousand for this this fetal liver. No, I'll give twelve hundred. And, yeah, I and mean, the parents I think aren't getting anything what, from it. The parents are simply getting... Parents aren't getting anything, and it doesn't sound like Planned Parenthood is getting anything other than reimbursed. But the companies that then process the tissue and sell it seem to be making a great deal of money, or at least the markup um, in terms of the prices that they have for hospitals and researchers are really high. So it seems like the irony here is that, in fact, there is a market and it's quite lucrative, but it's not benefiting Planned Parenthood, which has just taken a huge hit for, you know, providing the materials for that market, essentially. It's funny that are the are the anti-abortion folks going after the companies that are then selling the tissue or are they just going after Planned Parenthood? They're just going after Planned Parenthood. I mean, it's all about defunding Planned Parenthood and investigating Planned Parenthood. And you're right. There's an hypocrisy there. On the other hand, it's, you know, totally unsurprising in the abortion wars. That's that's how this would play out. I'm sure some of those companies are nervous. I mean, Nucatella named one of them um, while she was casually talking. But they're a step removed from this process. And it just seems like I'm sure they're not happy that there's been a light shown on all this because nobody really wants to think about fetal tissue, um, as I was saying earlier, irrational as that may be, given the health benefits of doing research with it. Does, um, it, yeah. does ahead, it always in the abortion fights, Emily, doesn't the anti-abortion side always basically have, on this kind of issue and with others, they have the, the graphic details on their side? 
that if they whenever they can move the conversation to the details of what's happening, it it helps it helps them. Well, especially if you're focusing on second trimester abortions. Right. I mean, if the earlier on an abortion happens, the less there are any graphic details that get anyone. Right. But once you're talking about organs and livers, which was what she was discussing, you're talking about, you know, later gestation fetuses. So my question is this. If you are opposed to abortion, this is a, a special horror. But is there any difference from what you, if you were opposed to abortion, think of as the horror of abortion in the first place? In other words, this is a, um, this is a demonstration of something you already oppose. Or is there something special about this case that is illegal on its own, separate and apart from wherever you may stand. I wanted to actually, question. I was going to, I wanted to frame it slightly differently, which is that if you are, if you favor abortion rights, as I do, this made me happier. This made me think, well, at least there's a positive there's good that's coming out, of it, coming out of it. Side coming out of it. This is very, you know, valuable. It, I think it's an interesting moral question, which is if you believe it to be evil, is the is the positive fruit of the evil make it worse or better. And and clearly you go to the Nazi experiment examples and there are certainly conservatives comparing this to Mengele who and there in that case it is the scientific knowledge gleaned from whatever terror terrible things the Nazis have done can never justify the terrible things and that the was, Nazis have done. That's where people f- were on the stem cell debate where you didn't have right. where it wasn't even close to this graphic. It was basically could have been completely disassociated from the human form because it was just little cells. Right. 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 I mean, I think this comes down to this whole idea of the market and of sales. I mean, if you think there's if you believe Planned Parenthood, we're not selling anything. This is all donations. We're merely being reimbursed. We're trying to help science. And of course, you're more likely to believe all that if you support abortion rights, then I think you probably land on the side of like, I didn't really want to know all this graphic detail, but I get it. On the other hand, if you oppose abortion, you're probably going to be more likely to think there's something really shady going on. I bet they are selling things. I bet there is a way that they're manipulating women and manipulating this process in order to make money. And once you're in that territory, that is damning. But but you don't even need to get there. I mean, even if there were no money transacted in any form, if you were an opponent of abortion, you would think that this kind of research was was I presume you would think right, this was but you asked is there something vile. specially horrible about that or John did yeah. and I think the idea of money and of sales is especially horrible and it also you know live action this group that's related to the Center for Medical Progress that the pro-life uh, activist Lila Rose has done these kind of hidden camera videos if you're following this as a meme there have been other moments yeah. where you know pro where I'm sorry Planned Parenthood counselors have been caught on tape saying things that seem questionable at least in the way the videos are edited. And so to the extent every one of these videos adds to this suspicion of Planned Parenthood, sure. what are they really doing there? What are they calling women? What are they telling women? How are, you know, are they on the up and up? No, they're not. Like all of that is grist for the mill. Right, right, right. But that's what I would, that's why I was trying to tease out what portion, I mean, as you pointed out, Emily, there's right. the, there's the graphic, there's the, the, the image of the film itself, which is powerful and then there is people's underlying views of abortion but then there are laws that regulate this kind of thing and the ethical rules that are in place to keep the market i guess you would say highly regulated as opposed to not because as you pointed out there is a market so the question is given trying to drain this of the emotionalism is there actually anything that was done that here that was illegal or that was crossing a line a new line separate apart from all the other lines that are existing in this this fight that we, as we know it. Right. I mean, I think the other thing is that as a political tool, having prominent medical ethicists say, yes, we think Planned Parenthood should be investigated is a big deal. Yeah. Because Congress, Republicans in Congress love to announce uh, investigations of Planned Parenthood. And usually they seem like they're out there on some kind of fringe. This time, it seems much more mainstream. And so certainly that will gain momentum. And if nothing else, it's going to cause an enormous amount of time and resources to deal with. So if you're Planned Parenthood, Emily, let's close with this. If you're Planned Parenthood, what is your defense here? Is your defense, is it, we shouldn't have talked this way, but the work we're doing here is extremely important? Is it, we will stop doing this? Is it, fuck y'all, this is amazing, even the way we're talking is amazing, and uh, this is just a smear campaign by right-wing hate groups? It's, I think, this is really important work. We are not making any money from this. We are merely trying to help science 
and then that's it. And maybe the smear campaign about the hate groups. I think, I mean, I noticed in Planned Parenthood statements, they said absolutely nothing about the tone, the, you know, kind of ambiance and atmosphere, the problematic optics of this video. They don't want to throw this doctor under the bus, but I think they don't want to defend the way she was talking about it because they know that most people are going to have a problem with it. Okay. Oh, hello. You've stumbled across something pretty exciting here. If things look a little shinier or high-tech, that's because we're now in Futuropolis. Or rather, you're listening to Futuropolis, a new podcast from Popular Science on Panoply. Are your daydreams consumed by what food we might eat in a space colony or whether our bodies will someday be replaced with cyborg parts? Us too. We decided to stop dreaming and start asking some pretty smart scientists what life will be like in the future. I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Lindsay Cradwell. And we'll be your trusty guides to the world of tomorrow. Subscribe to Futuropolis to get every episode as soon as it comes out. Or search for Futuropolis on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're having a glass of wine, talking with someone posing as a buyer for a bi- biological services company, after you've started talking about the the uh, fetal organs you're selling, Emily, what are you going to be chattering about? <laughs> That's just the so grimmest of- setup. <laughs> well, they were having cocktails, right? They were drinking wine. Not cocktails. Not definitely even wine. I d- yeah. Oh, um, come on. <laughs> I've been drinking a lot of Prosecco this summer and really enjoying it, which I think maybe is a drink that... John, your lovely wife, Anne, served me years ago in a memorable way. I sort of associated with her. Anyway, I have been thinking about criminal justice reform this week because President Obama has been talking about it. And Bill Clinton issued this interesting statement expressing regret for legislation he signed in the 90s that upped sentences in a way that has contributed to mass incarceration. And even wonkier, a couple of judges on the federal appeals called court called the Ninth Circuit, um, both wrote law review articles recently calling for the repeal of a statute that I have been complaining about, along with many federal judges, for a very long time. It's called the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, EDPA for short. Clinton signed it in 1996. What it does is limit federal, limit, I'm sorry, limit everybody's uh, state and federal prisoners' rights to what's called a habeas appeal. These are the appeals that kick in after you've had your conviction and your direct appeal, usually in state court. And essentially, it's just been in the hands of the conservatives on the Supreme Court, an extremely effective tool for forcing um, cases out of court, federal judges not being able to really hear fully on the merits a claim that comes up later after a conviction. Sometimes these are claims about procedural unfairness. Sometimes they're claims of actual innocence. All of the this sort of avenue of the the great writ of habeas has been very much narrowed by um, by this 1996 law, and these two judges, Stephen Reinhardt and Alex Kaczynski, who have been calling for its repeal, are not um, ideological twins in the slightest. Uh, Reinhardt is like a liberal, avowed Carter appointee, and um, Kaczynski is a Reagan appointee who's quite conservative. So it's just really interesting to see the kind of federal judiciary rise up against this particular problematic aspect of the criminal justice um, reform movement. So I wrote a piece about it that will go online at some point. All right. John Dickerson, what's your chatter? Some years hence, when we or our offspring are imprisoned in some sort of factory slave labor environment, um, when we finally come under the control of the robots, we will. How pleasant! We will I can't wait. Back. What a fun cocktail party yeah. you're having. We will harken back to this moment, which is when, um, in an experiment, robots, or at least one robot, or perhaps three of the robots, passed a crucial self-awareness test, and the test was. Um, and this was written about in The New Scientist. The test is based on the old wisdom self-awareness test for humans, which is a fictional king is choosing a new advisor, and he gathers three of them together, and he gives them either a white hat or a blue hat, and he says, sits them all down, and he says, the first person to stand up and correctly deduce the color of your own hat will be my new advisor. So they took these th- three robots and said that they had each been giving, given a, a dumbing pill, And in reality, what had happened is their speech function, the speech function on two of them 
had been turned off. And so then all three were asked, which one of the three of you have been given the dumbing pill? What happens is the they all attempt to say, I don't know. But one of them succeeds and actually hears himself saying, I don't know, and then realizes once he has heard himself say, I don't know, that in fact he hasn't been given the dumbing pill. And so then the robot says, hearing his own voice, the robot says, sorry, I know now. I was able to prove that I was not given the dumbing pill. So then, and then the, the robot writes out the mathematical proof and saves it to memory that proves that he understood. So that was a crucial test of um, consciousness. And what's the blue? What's the blue hat version? And the blue hat and the white hat version is your hat is put on your head, okay. and if you can tell what color it is, but you then know you are the smart advisor. You know that there are, I guess, two white and one blue. I think you know the total universe of the hats. No, I think it's yeah. Well, I guess the the total universe is either two wet, two whites and one blue, or one or two blues and one white, and then you have to figure out which you are. And I'm not sure how you solve that problem, but that is the the wise man. So does this mean the robots are taking over the world? Is that the moral? Uh, yes. I mean, the question is whether I don't know whether the two dumb robots had the same revelation that the speaking robot had, because the speaking robot once it heard its voice knew. But the dumb robots don't can't know that. They can know that they are unable to hear their own voice, and since they're unable to but hear they their can't own know voice, that they, they, they only know, know of themselves. They only, but they, that's all they need to know. Is, oh, they don't. Were you know. given the dumbing pill, oh, and they know the answer is yes okay. because they can't say I don't know. So I, I didn't read in the article. I was everybody was um, focused on the one that was able to talk because it not only was able to talk, but it was then able to know once it had heard itself to reevaluate its original opinion of things. So I didn't, the other two were totally, they didn't get the press conference. They were like in a bar somewhere. Do you think the other two robots, were were they the same robots? No, you mean built the same or were they like a different kind? And and if that, that is the most revealing thing. Like if they're not smart, then why would one be able to know and the other two not? I don't know. I don't know. I didn't, the article didn't go on. We're going to have people writing in explaining that to us, but. uh, Yeah, we need to hear about the I was just um, kind of fascinated with (laughs) with the experiment itself. And right. uh, by the way, it, for those of our, we shouldn't leave out our robot listening audience. Uh, any of those of you out there who are robots, write Can in. Can you hear us, us robots? If you yeah. heard us, write in. Yeah, exactly. If you're, but maybe you were given the no hearing pill. Hmm. If so, you can't hear this. Right, a, a pill that some of our listeners might be writing in for, <laughs> they are for themselves. Now, even now, they have that pill. They're taking that pill desperately. All right, my chatter is a, a, is a bit of a Ramadan ethics question throwing out to our audience. Last Friday or Saturday night, my wife and I and, and some friends went out to a fantastic restaurant in out in the Virginia suburbs of D.C. called Saba, which is a Yemenite restaurant. And we just read about it and thought, like, let's go try it. And we got there around 8. And as we were driving, I realized, wait, Ramadan's going on. It's still light out. This is clearly going to be a restaurant by Muslims. Is it open? Like, what's going on? Man, no, so man, you got so we, so free seating, So man. we got there. We got there. And um, we were basically the only people in the restaurant. And the, everyone who worked there was Muslim. And they had all been – like they'd had to prepare all the food oh for gosh. the people who are coming to eat even though, you know, they themselves couldn't eat. And it was about – I just checked with the waiter and he said, oh, yeah, it's 8.37 or something is when when sun, sundown is. And they were – and but we we like ate the dates they gave us immediately even though it was still light out. And then as we were there from about starting around 8.20, lots of – uh, obviously, Muslim families came in to break the fast. They had they came in. They were gonna they were got there and they sat down tables, but they did couldn't eat or drink because it was still Ramadan. Meanwhile, our food starts coming out to us, and it was terrible because there we were, and all this delicious food is being brought out to us, and it's still fifteen minutes away, and everyone else is just sitting there, <laughs> unable to eat, and it's fifteen, 15 minutes away minutes for them, too long for them, to and they were and there's there. this and this you know these are this food is very savory and has like really rich, wonderful smells. And we'd kind of, we thought we'd asked the waiter not to serve us, but apparently we hadn't asked him clearly enough. And so the food, food came out. And I'm just asking Muslim friends, like, what, what should we have done there? Obviously, the ideal would have been to not have gotten served so that we weren't eating in front of everybody. But there was or the food. Or to have gotten to the restaurant 20 minutes well, yeah, later but that was, with all right, the Muslim families right, breaking their right. fast. But, you know, was it terrible and rude of us to eat in front of you even though we're not Muslim? Or was and yet, okay? on the other hand, you um, help them get have an even even more a deeper uh, association with their faith, and therefore strengthen their faith because it's all about you know abnegation, <laughs> so that you can focus on what's important. There was there so was, you help them in their in their 
Mm, I don't know if there I would feel that way at the end of Yom Kippur. There was one family between them and us. <laughs> really? Yes. Oh, I couldn't man. tell if it was because we were eating or, or just by happenstance, but it was very, I felt really self-conscious. Those of you who are, who are actual Muslims, as opposed to John and Emily, who just play ones on the show, write to us at facebook.com slash gabfest or email us at gabfest at slate.com and tell me whether, how, yeah. how much of an ethical violation I committed or moral and, violation I committed. And if you're a Muslim robot, you can answer both questions. Yes. Yes. And what color hat is John wearing right now? <laughs> Good question. Our intern is Tark Barrett. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of our show. GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And uh, show page is Slate.com slash GabFest. Facebook page, I just said that. Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Email address, I already said that, too. You can subscribe to us in iTunes. That's helpful. iTunes is a place where there are a lot of podcasts. So, you know, do that. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week, and then I think we have our live show in two weeks. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>